got the plague. I got a fever. You've got the plague. Welcome to The Plague, the podcast where we look not just at the ongoing coronavirus pandemic, but at the societal plagues, the plagues created by human socioeconomic systems that make the coronavirus more virulent and dangerous. I'm your host, L.M. Bogad, broadcasting from my shelter-in-place bunker, and every episode we examine a different societal plague, a political or social pre-existing condition that cross-indicated with the coronavirus, makes it deadlier than it could otherwise ever be. The coronavirus infects the human body, but what illnesses in our body politic make us more vulnerable? Economic inequality, environmental devastation, labor precarity? We pick a different social plague each week and talk with an expert about how that plague makes this pandemic worse and what we can do about it. My guest tonight, I'm extremely honored to have uh, Dr. Rupa Maria here. Rupa Maria, MD, is an associate professor of medicine at UCSF uh, and faculty director of the Do No Harm Coalition, an organization of over 450 health workers committed to addressing racism as an urgent public health problem. Rupa is currently working on her first book with co-author Raj Patel, documenting the health impacts of colonialism on our bodies, on the planet, and on our societies. She was recently appointed by Governor Newsom to the Healthy California for All Commission, where she brings her perspectives on equity to the dialogue around single-payer health care in California. Rupa, we're so fortunate to have you uh, on the show tonight. Um, what is the plague of the week? Well, I think the the big plague is colonialism and um, and the 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 one I'd like to speak about more specifically is racism, which is how we've been divided and conquered um, here in the United States, um, how the society has been set up and we're watching COVID play out along the same race lines um, as we always see in the United States with regards to disparities of um, health. Mm -hmm. How does that play out? I mean, you maybe you could tell us a little bit more about what your last three weeks have been like. Uh, on the front lines and and how you're seeing both here locally and on the global picture, how racism, of course, is this sort of horrible pre-existing condition that we need to deal with. Well, in um, San Francisco, where I practice at UCSF, we've been very lucky to have a governor who believes in science and acts on <laughs> science. Um, and so and did, that shouldn't be a luxury, should it? <laughs> Well, I'd be really interested to do a study when this is all done to see what the population weighted mortality rates are um, in mm. Republican um, states with Republican governors who do not believe in science or who do not act on science um, versus people, um, states with governors who do believe in science and do act on science. And I think that that will be a really interesting um marker for um, what is to come with climate change because COVID-19, this coronavirus is our little um, harbinger. So it's it's mm -hmm. signaling to us, you know, where the fracture lines of our society are, where we're vulnerable um, for, for this kind of virus, which is, you know, really exposing 
what, you know, how we're doing as a world, let's say, with regards to our capacity to respond to emergency. Um, Well, it's like these crises do reveal what's already dysfunctional. It just brings it out uh, under pressure. Yeah. And so I think that with COVID, um, you know, we're seeing in the United States. So in San Francisco, we have had a slow increase in the number of hospitalized patients we see. So I work as a hospital medicine doctor at UCSF, and I was working in the last few weeks of February and the first week of March, um, like many shifts, and we had our first COVID-19 patient in San Francisco was with was here um, at UCSF, and um, it was one of the cruise ship people from Japan came. And it's it's been remarkable to me to see the dynamics in the hospital around infection control. So, you know, it took us several weeks to really get our infection control act together. And I think in the weeks where we we didn't have our act together, and I I still don't think our act is as together as Taiwan, which has been doing an amazing job at controlling um, you know, just dealing with the social dynamics of the outbreak as well as controlling the um, response medically in a really high, high-level fashion. Um, so, but, you know, before we had that down, you know, we were seeing things where people, you know, are we supposed to wear masks? Are we not supposed to wear masks? Nurses were being punished for wearing masks, Um, You know, security guards who are mostly brown and black, um, almost 100% of the food workers are brown and black, different people who work in the hospital who are very much exposed to everyone who walks through the doors. We're being admonished for wearing masks. You know, if you wear a mask, you'll make people feel afraid and then people will feel the need to wear a mask. And, you know, this, this, um, this kind of psychosis around right. masking was simply because our um, our government and our leadership was not prepared. They right. had no pandemic supplies of masks. And so instead of, you know, maybe issuing a full-throated, um, you know, shouting at our federal government to use the Defense Production Act to get everybody as many masks as we need, we instead saw, you know, um, rank and file workers of the hospital complex being harassed by um, mm-hmm. different levels of, you know, the hospital. Right. Um, and this has happened all over the country. And so it's not, you know, and I understand, you know, the the challenge for the hospitals is that we don't want people using masks when there aren't a bunch of COVID-19 patients around because we need to save them for when there are a bunch of COVID-19 patients. The unfortunate nature of this disease is that so much of it is asymptomatic spread. Right. So we don't know how it's spreading, but we do see, you know, every week more and more health workers testing positive for COVID-19. And so it makes us wonder, okay, how is this spreading? But um, what, you know, what we've seen at UCSF is not um, that the the aspect of the patients is not so much um, revealing disparities yet. um, But what I worry about in California are our most vulnerable people. And by that, I mean, black, indigenous, and um, our Latino farm workers, especially. Um, So these people who are um, exquisitely vulnerable because of the legacies of violence from colonialism that have really set up the structures of how our society recreates and um, creates social structure. 
um, right. around these race lines. So for California Native people and the California Tribal, there's the Rural Tribal Health Board, we've been in touch with them about making sure that people have enough access to PPE, so the personal protective equipment, the masks and the gloves and the gowns, and surely they, they don't have enough um, in their rural communities. And that, that to me is very concerning because um, black and indigenous people um, in general in our society have higher rates of diabetes and obesity. And these conditions are also caused, I believe, by a legacy of colonial colonialism. So these structures yes. in our society that make people more predisposed to getting these diseases when they're on the, um, you know, the, the lower rungs of power um, that right. have been structured in a, in a classist race-based caste system. Um, and so those are the people I'm the most concerned about. And if we look right now um, in Milwaukee County, where the population is 26% black, um, about half the county's cases, half of the county's 941 cases are African-American and 81% of the deaths in that county are black Americans. And you're seeing the same thing in Michigan where the population is only 14% black, but the death rate, um, 40% of the deaths are black. And Mm. so it's the same disproportionate suffering um, for, you know, poor black indigenous communities. So, right. and here in California, our farm workers, again, are especially vulnerable because of um, uh, several things. Number one, their housing tends to be very crowded. Um, so they, they are living in poor environments that are crowded. They have low access to health care. They feel disempowered because they've been threatened by our immigration system. Um, so they don't feel empowered to seek help. And then they're working in places that have terrible air pollution. And what we can see with the maps, um, if you look at the maps of where COVID is breaking out around the world, they're places with really high levels of air pollution. Um, And what, what, what what several of us are thinking in medicine right now is, is the air pollution, which we know predisposes people to cardiovascular disease and lung disease by causing this chronic inflammation in our bodies, is that um, somehow making the expression of this virus more intense so that when people get infected in these areas, they're getting, um, it's becoming more of an explosive infection. Um, mm. And so it's sort of like setting people up for um, a bad outcome. So we, it's incredible because this whole concept of environmental racism, that in a racist power structure, the uh, environmental damage is going to be worse in communities of color. That that is mapping out to also aggravate how vulnerable one is to dying of this coronavirus. Right, for sure. Yes, I think that that's going to be, you know, and that's why we've been, I've been, you know, emailing folks at the governor's office and here in Oakland and our California EPA about, you know, as the Trump administration is relaxing the regulations on the EPA right now, Mm -hmm. how do we get our local groups to actually protect us? Because if air pollution is playing a role, um, you know, you can't really divide the air. And even though there are zip codes that are more impacted by, um, by air pollution, it, it goes everywhere. 
And mm-hmm. so how do we um, how do we protect ourselves knowing that we have this um, threat to all of our health, um, but especially how do we protect our most vulnerable people? Right. And all of that deregulation of the EPA being for an agenda of raise the stock market at any cost. If, you know, the, whenever they got rid of these regulations, it was sort of a cocaine bump for the stock market, you know, right. uh, with deadly results. Right. And so like this is, you know, such an interesting moment in our history, too, because we just came out of these, you know, dialogues and debates in the Democratic primary around like, how are you going to pay for Medicare for all? Like, this is crazy. How are you going to pay for, um, you know, education for everybody? And how are you going to pay for canceling student debt and all these? Oh, this is such a pipe dream. And Mm. within a week, we've seen trillions of dollars evaporate to try to prop up our economic system while there is an acceptance that hundreds of thousands of people will die. To me, this just exposes so clearly the violence of our system that that the the trillions of dollars are not being spent right now to a secure protective equipment for every frontline provider and masks for every people, for everybody in this country. Sure. Um, it's not being spent to provide, to get ventilators where they need to get um, and it's not being provided to make sure that people are safe and healthy through this experience. It's not being provided to ensure that every single person has access to all the health care that they need right now. And also in six months from now, as we're pulling ourselves out of the economic impact of what has happened. So if you have millions of people who have lost their jobs and consequently lost their health care, because unfortunately this country ties healthcare with your job, which is a a great way to ensure that workers don't Mm. walk off a job. It's a great way to keep us locked into a crappy job. So now we have a situation where those jobs have evaporated and people are vulnerable. In six months from now is when we're really going to see the human tragedy because then people are going to be dying from diseases that they don't need to be dying from simply because they won't have access to care or, or their medicine. And we right. already see, you know, 68,000 unnecessary deaths in the United States a year um, from a lack of health care insurance. Um, and so now we're going to see that rate just blow up. And that's why it's such an important time for everybody to be demanding Medicare for all. Um, mm-hmm. Because if we can bail out Wall Street, um, you know, yeah. if we can if we can spend that much money on propping up an economy that is going to tank. There's no way it's not going to tank. If you're not working and you're not making things and you're not selling things, the economy changes. It, it just goes on a pause. And well, isn't I, it interesting that there's always money for these other things? There's never money. It's, it is a fantasy. It's impossible to have Medicare for all. But whenever there's another war or another Wall Street bailout, somehow the money manifests. Or, of course, it goes on the big credit card. I do think that is part of your analysis in terms of, honestly, race or caste, as it were, as well. Uh, The money does manifest for the interests of one group and not for the the many. Right. And, you know, you're seeing the same thing worldwide, you know, where Mm -hmm. when you when this does when this virus really hits in India, um, Mm -hmm. which sadly has another, um, you know, nationalist ruler, Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, who's going to be left out? We already see the poor people in India really impacted by this lockdown. Um, what is, you know, the, the, it'll be interesting and sad and um, important to really pay attention to India and Africa and South America to see, you know, how this virus moves and, and how we respond or don't respond and what that says about um, mm-hmm. our world and what that says about, you know, what's coming with climate change because this virus is showing us who we are right. and, um, and, and what we will allow um, and what we're seeing in the United States um, is that, you know, it's the same violence um, that has um, perpetuated in this country around race. Um, well, yeah, I mean, when New Orleans was devastated and there was a lack of adequate and speedy help, uh, there was at least some part of a racial component to that. Is that fair to say in terms of the... Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, you know, this... So we're seeing something similar now, at least in terms of uh, uh, the lack of speed with which the federal government responds while uh, urban centers are being uh, plagued. Yes. Uh, yeah. And sub mm-hmm. and, and, um, and rural centers and rural centers. Mm-hmm. As you said, that's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The folks that are most marginalized in a racist system. And I think... Uh, these vulnerabilities you're pointing out are really important for us to understand. I'm glad you brought an international perspective to it as well. Uh, Global North versus Global South, post-colonial societies, uh, and the discrepancy in the the resources that are available to deal with uh, the coronavirus and future pandemics, I guess. You know, as you say, I don't, India, uh, (laughs) India may not be prepared uh, to deal with this when it really gets going. Absolutely. I mean, and also yeah. it's so hard to get information out of India, um, mm-hmm. like, you know, like here. I mean, we don't even have daily reporting of who's dying from COVID. We don't have daily right. reporting of the um, demographics. How old are people who are dying of COVID? You kind of have to piece it together from reports here and there, but there should be centralized daily reporting of what their race is, where they are, how old they are, are they male or female? Um, and so if we do see that, I think we'll, you know, start to see this very um, intense reality emerging for us. You've got the play. You've got the play. So what do we do, Rupa? I know that you're also very much an advocate and an and a activist uh, and a great cultural worker and music maker. Um, I'm wondering if we continue to use this medical metaphor that this racism uh, and inequality is a, is a societal plague that makes coronavirus and any disaster like it worse. What's, what are some treatments that you would prescribe? How do we try to begin to get that, these plagues under, uh, under control? Well, I really think that this is, um, this is the work of, yeah, no, this is the work of anti-racism and decolonization. I mean, I Mm -hmm. think the real, the real medicine here is decolonizing our societies and, um, really, putting, you know, our relationships to indigenous people in the right, in the right place. And which means centralizing and respecting and 
honoring indigenous people, honoring, um, you know, repairing what has happened to um, black people on this land. And I'm sure indigenous people will be very vocal about what that looks like in terms of how we how we heal from historic trauma so that it doesn't just keep recreating from generation to generation. And so I think that the work of decolonizing is really thinking about what kind of society do we want to live in? Do we want to live in a society when a virus rages like this, we'll see such disproportionate, um, you know, like killing and and dying and suffering of, of different peoples. Um, do we want to live in a society where when something happens like this, A, we are prepared, we have, um, you know, scientists that we trust at the helm um, guiding our leadership, and we have all the things that we need. And if we don't, we jump into action to make them. I was just reading a report from a professor at Stanford, um, Dr. Wang, who is looking at the response from Taiwan. In Taiwan, the first, you know, 100 cases that they saw, they went from 3 million masks to 11 million masks, you know, Mm, within the case of a few weeks because they knew what this was. And they, you know, they just made them themselves. And so now they're donating masks to us and other countries um, Mm. in this tiny little country. Um, And so... But they treated it like it mattered. They actually said, hey, this is actually a priority now. Yes. And they also have universal health care. And they also have a very strong sense of a social contract when it comes to these things because they, you know, they had to deal with SARS um, another coronavirus. So they, they had some practice. And so I think that this really does, you know, give us an opportunity to think about how do we want to be in this world together? Do we want a world where we don't have healthcare? That is not just guaranteed that you could go and see a doctor and get a test or that you could go and see a doctor if you're short of breath and not worry about the 911 call and not worry about the bill you might get Um, after you've just fought for your life. Um, Do we want to live in a world where we look out for each other, where when we see our neighbors um, who, whatever their race are, are people who live across town, are people who live, you know, uh, in the next city, that we we become conscious of what their experience is and and work on anti-racist things. activities that will make sure that people are protected, not just when there's a outbreak, but, you know, so that they're not getting rates of asthma that are disproportionate or diabetes that's disproportionate or cardiovascular disease or, or shot by the police in a disproportionate way. So all of these things are, you know, deeply related because they all have to do with the structure of our society. That means that some people's health actually doesn't matter as much as everybody else's. And it was interesting because I was, you know, I'm a woman of color and I was at the grocery store today um, mm-hmm. stocking up for my week because I have to go in the hospital mm-hmm. again this week. And I got in line and as happens, you know, I was standing at the meat counter and there was a line of several people and I got into the line and everyone was six feet apart. And then when I got to the meat counter, this this white woman walked up to the meat counter and she was like about to go in front of me. And I said, oh, were you in line? And she said, yeah, I've, I've been standing here since you were over there. And, huh. I, and I looked at her and I was like, oh, God. 
Like, you know, it's, it's not unusual for me to have to experience white people standing in front of me and claiming that they were there first. It's actually happened at that grocery store many times. Yeah. And I just sort of like looked at her and then she looked back at me and then the man says next. And then she motioned to me and I said, I said, go ahead. She's like, no, no, no. Why don't you go? Uh huh. And I was like, whoa, that's right. never happened. <laughs> <laughs> and it just really stuck out to me because yeah. I was like, wait a minute. Maybe yeah. this woman saw for a moment her behavior. Maybe right. for the first time in my life did a person <laughs> who just like totally cut in line using right. her racial privilege stop and realize what she did. And then, well, like, if, and then, if I understand it, her first response was defensive and denying. And then her second but then, response was... But then it was, did sink in. Yeah. And then she was like, no, you go. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, damn. So that to me was, you know, a tiny little glimmer sure. of hope that perhaps this virus is opening a portal for us, is opening mm. a consciousness for us of what kind of world do we want? Because the one that we're in our normal reactions, hey, I was here first, it's mm-hmm. not working. It's not working. And right. and instead, is there a way of being where we can be kinder and show more care of each other? And it really is about creating a culture of care. That's what decolonizing is all about. And it's not something you can do on your own. It's not something you can just, I'm going to decolonize myself. You have to decolonize in relationship to people in relationship to indigenous people, in relationship to the earth, in relationship to the animals, to the water, to your neighbors, to people of different races. Right. And And to say it's not okay that you're getting sick from the air, from the water in your neighborhood, and I'm not in mine. Exactly. sense of separation. It's not business as usual. It's not okay. It's not okay. And it's not going to be okay. Right. Right. If there's a pandemic, it's not okay. And if there's not a pandemic, it's not okay. Right. And so if we're looking at like the, the, for the first time, I think people are more aware of the importance of farm workers simply Mm. because they realized, oh shit, what if they get sick? Right. Who's going to bring our food? What if now that the borders are closed, what if they don't come to pick our food? Our, our food system will collapse. I mean, right. it really will collapse. Right. And that's not a fiction, that's reality. And mm. so I think that that, to me, hopefully that, that reality, people starting to see the networks of power, the networks that, that actually keep them alive. You can't right. even wipe your own ass right now with toilet paper. <laughs> doesn't matter how much money you have. You go to the store, you can't wipe your ass. Right. And I think right. that that's, you know, just a, a... Does that mean that America is full of shit? Sorry. I just wanted to throw that out there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, th- I just think it's a really interesting metaphor that we can't even wipe our ass. Like, right. right. Like, so what, what, <laughs> like, <laughs> what, where does that leave us? Um <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, so, but it stands in for so much else. In other words, we are interdependent. Right. And, and so when you take the people who literally feed you for exactly. granted because of racial categories and power system, you know, and, and environmental racism, uh, you create a system that is unhealthy. Right. And so, that does not withstand stress or crisis well. Right. And so uh, if you look at, you know, really deeply understanding your food, 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm married to a farmer, so we've been ramping up our seed planting this spring, thinking like, what if we, what if the food system collapses? How will we take care of our immediate community? How can we plant right. as much as we can, not just here on the, the land we have with our neighbors, we've taken down our fences, but the neighbors across the street and the ones, you know, up the hill who have an mm-hmm. acre. And so like all together, how can we get as much food in the ground as possible? Right. Um, and so when you, when you start to see that, the relationships that actually support your life, whether it's your doctor, your nurse, your friends, your community, you know, when you, your, your elders, your, your youth, when you start to really see your farm workers, your farmers, all those essential things, it just, it, it really causes you to reevaluate what you've been placing value in, in our society. And right. so that to me, just that taking stock of what we really value and, and what is supporting our lives, not, you know, not our luxuries, but our lives, our health mm-hmm. and our lives. That to me is such um, an exciting thing. And the sustenance, what it, we're talking about sustenance literally and also just in terms of uh, family law, broadly defined, I feel like. Um, it, sure, we're, we're in our yeah. little set community. Yes, yeah. And, and equality within that community, um, working towards it. Um, you know, Rupa, I do remember us working uh, on a street theater piece. I shouldn't say street theater. It was bank lobby theater um, at, a, at a big uh, Wells Fargo bank in San Francisco. Yes. And this wasn't, <laughs> and I just was on the phone brainstorming because I had to teach at my university. But uh, I was quite moved by the fact that you and a number of other do no harm coalition folks working with an indigenous activist, right, um, wanted to put together a protest at Wells Fargo about their policies and take it straight to them. And uh, I think, uh, you know, basically political performance art uh, as an action. And I feel that that kind of action, um, as well as the very deep action of planting your own food and taking down fences between people so they can work together and have more land, that these are many different facets of the same gem of resistance. Yes. Yes. I think that just the commoning, like that's what we're doing Mm -hmm. here in East Mm -hmm. Oakland is we are taking private property and holding it in common. And so Mm -hmm. we have 10 chickens in common and we just built a beautiful stage in common. (laughs) And, you know, we're planting amaranth and broccoli and leeks and beets and tomatoes. And we have so much food going into the ground that we will take care of in common and harvest in common and share in common. Mm -hmm. And I think that that lost art of commoning is um, really exciting to bring back as a daily practice. And, I get excited about the idea of medicine being um, commons again um, so that, you know, people people feel their doctors and their nurses, their healers are right there with them in their communities um, to help guide, guide them when they need it and to celebrate their own, um, you know, their own, uh, their own adventures in, 
in health, in, in understanding mm. their, their own resiliency and their health. It's wonderful. And that the idea that in common, I mean, our, we, our health as one community is, should be held in common. Exactly. And that it's not, it's not okay to separate this cast and say, your health doesn't matter. Exactly. And as soon as we do that, we have an unhealthy body politic. Exactly. And there sick, sickness that will, and vulnerabilities that will pervade. I think that's a really wonderful parallel you've made. Well, uh, I think that that's where yeah. the, you know, the violence of colonialism is a violence mm. of separation. It's a separation mm -hmm. of nature from humanity as if we were separate, as if we didn't exist deeply embedded in as a part of the web of life. Um, and colonialism with its, you know, engine of economy required us to see ourselves as separate, you know, and it was based on a lot of mythologies and stories from Europe that have now pervaded around the world to somehow um, demonstrate that we can live separate and um, be separate. But what we see when we are um, with these myths is that we get sick and COVID-19 like Ebola um, is, you know, directly from a, a, a mis, a mis um, let's see, a misunderstanding hmm. of how we are interrelated with the animals, with the water, with the forests. Um, and when we pretend that we are not and, and just treat these entities as disposable or as, as, things as opposed to, you know, living beings and entities mm -hmm. that deserve our respect. Um, things go, things go off. And right. that's what we're seeing, not just here with COVID-19 or Ebola, but that's what deeply we're seeing with climate change. Right. And that's only going to get worse, right? It's continued. We have to, we have to start, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago <laughs> to deal with that problem, but we certainly have to get on board now. Uh, as a community. Yes, it's um, a good time. And it, you know, it's also mm -hmm. like, you know, when you think about this portal that's opening through this virus as we're all, you know, well, lots of us are pausing in our lives, like some, mm -hmm. some of us doctors and nurses and frontline workers in the hospitals are not so much pausing, but um, as the world around us kind of grinds to a halt, it's, it's a great time to sit and, and really take account of these things and to imagine the world the way we want to be. And then also realize at the same time, there's a lot of people like Modi and Trump who are envisioning the world the way they want it to be and that they're yes. pushing their um, fascist agendas um, and mm. to push and divide us even further. And so if there was ever a time to, you know, really drink in the nectar of anti-fascism and to deeply unite ourselves um, and to heal what has been divided, it is, it is right now. Because as this portal is open, it'll be open for a while, a small while, and then we'll go into the post-COVID rebuilding and how mm -hmm. that rebuilding will happen will be determined by which narratives are the strongest, best, most convincing and exciting to people. And mm -hmm. so I'm hoping the narrative of building together and building a society based on health for everybody, including the water, including the earth. I, I hope the narrative of decolonizing and really centralizing indigenous people wherever we are on this planet because they are holding the keys 
to a biodiverse and healthy, thriving world that the rest of us have forgotten how to create. So let's follow. Let's lead by following them. And I think that um, that is the exciting work up ahead that I'm, I'm thrilled to be a part of and, and watching it unfold. Right. Part of that cultural work as well as just straight up community organizing towards that goal. And I, I hope the listeners, many of whom may have been slowing down <laughs> during this pause, unlike Rupa Maria, yourself, you've been working very hard. But I hope others who have a pause can can stop and take in what you just said and say, hey, what which narrative, which story do I want to help to make reality? You know, the racist and fascist one that our administration wants or one more like what you've described, something that can actually sustain and, and be just. Um, Rupa, I just want to say thank you and, and uh, for sharing that vision with us and for being one of the people making that vision a reality in our world. Both, uh, and I appreciate your tracing out the this horrible pre-existing condition that our society has of racism and colonialism, both taking place in the workplace, in the hospital itself, in the larger society, in different communities around the world. It's my understanding you were willing to share a song with us. Uh, can you tell us about the song you of yours that you were willing to share with us? Yeah, I'm going to share a song um, from my latest album that we put out with um, the amazing artwork of Mona Caron. Mm-hmm. Um, if you go to our website, theaprilfishes.com, you can see her artwork there. And it looks like the coronavirus, which just blows my mind because the album mm-hmm. came out a, exactly a year ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has these... Um, you know, it's this, it looks like a globe, and on the globe there are 12 different sprouting seeds, so it looks like the little corona, the little crown of the coronavirus, and the seeds are sprouting out of each individual, um, and behind each individual there is a scene that we are working away from, whether it's pesticides, you know, fossil fuel-based um, chemicals being poured on our foods, or, um, you know, Bolsonaro and Trump screaming on screens or, you know, the, the, the deforestation, the fires. Um, and in front of that are these sprouting, sp- beautiful sprouts that are growing. I asked Mona to design the artwork as a set of seeds, uh, seed packets. So we released our last album in plastic-free form. The album is called Growing Upward. And... Um, So she designed just such a genius. She designed them as a circle so that when you put all 12 seed packets together, it makes this beautiful mandala pattern. And you can see that the roots of each of these seeds as they go towards the center of this sphere are are holding on to each other. They're connected. Mm -hmm. That all of us around the world who are working on this work are all connected and we're all working in our small ways um, doing a big thing together. Um, Just like this virus is saying, you know, I just think it's amazing that this moment is starting with alone together. Like we're alone in our own worlds, in our own, you know, apartments. And we're seeing what that really is like to be so far away from each other and, Mm -hmm. and so longing for our friends and our communities. But we are together. We are, we are doing this together. And here in San Francisco, in the Bay Area, 
it looks like the data is showing that we are flattening the curve. We are yes. not seeing the slamming of our hospitals because of the social contract, the unspoken social contract that we have had with each other to protect each other. Mm -hmm. And so if we can do that for coronavirus, we can do that to shut down the refineries that are polluting the air for the people in Richmond, to shut down the ABNI foundry, to hold the Navy accountable for the the violent pollution of Hunter's Point um, shipyard with the asbestos and the radioactive material, we can actually extend that social contract to shut down the cities the next time a brown or black person gets shot by the police. Mm -hmm. We can do this because we have seen that we can do this. We have also seen that when we withhold our labor together, we can grind the stock market to a halt. We can Mm -hmm. stop this system from running. And that, I hope, is the deepest takeaway from this time for everybody, is that our collective power is so strong. If we want Medicare for all, we just need to stop what we're doing and demand it and say we will come to work when we get Medicare for all. This engine of this economy will start running when it's running in the direction that supports us, the workers, the engines of that of that um, economy, and right. so that is you know that is exciting that we are alone together, and this yes. is the transition is alone where we were to together. Right. Well, it's like now we have physical separation and social solidarity. Exactly. And when we have the chance to get together, first of all, there's going to be a lot of hugging. Lots of <laughs> hugging. Lots of germs. Uh, lots, lots of germs. Of germs. Right. Yeah. Enjoy yeah. the biome. Yes, the biome is yes. reunited. It's fabulous. Uh, the biome party. Yeah, no. So <laughs> the song I wanted to share was a declaration for human rights that I wrote mm-hmm. with our comrade and just yes. loving friend, Guillermo Gomez Pena. Yes. We wrote together a declaration of the of human rights of the other San Francisco um, at a time, you know, of the evictions where we were becoming increasingly alien in, in our own home, mm-hmm. um, we wrote this um, Declaration of Human Rights. And it starts with a beat that I created um, with my friend Damien Gallegos, who's an amazing, um, amazing producer and artist. Mm-hmm. Um, with He works often with Boots Riley and The Coup. And Damien and I made this beat of my friends saying in their indigenous languages, we are still here. And so that forms like the, the pulse that you hear in the song. And then Guillermo in his beautiful voice articulates this declaration of human rights, which I feel is the world that, that is, is, is she's, she's just ready to be born. Mm, Wonderful. I'm so happy you were willing to share this song with us. I can't wait to hear it myself again. And um, I'm a big fan. And it was wonderful to hear your analysis and your inspiring example, Rupa. Thank you for joining us here on The Plague. Thank you so much. Yes. All right. All right. Lots of love. A declaration of human rights. We From the older self-esteem. A declaration of human rights. We are my love. We are from the from the from the older San Francisco from the 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 from
has the right to live without fear of eviction, state order removal, deportation, displacement, or forced migration. Everyone has the right to not be perceived and treated as foreigners in our own hometown and country. Everyone has the right to cross borders with or without proper documentation, to travel wherever they please and work wherever they need. Everyone has the right to our personal belongings, whether they are housed, unhoused, or traveling across borders. Everyone has the right to remain in their communities and in their homes, regardless of ownership, real estate trends, or tech booms. A declaration of human rights. A declaration of human rights. A declaration, a declaration, a declaration, a declaration of human rights. Everyone has the right to sleep outside in the streets without punishment, to rest in public spaces without being criminalized. has the right to live without fear of being shot by the police, the border patrol, or citizen vigilantes. Everyone has the right to police the police instead of the police policing themselves. We have the right, when in mental crisis, to be treated with loving kindness and radical tenderness instead of pills, indifference, and jails. We have the right to live in the city of our choice without a militarized presence in times of peace. dignified universal health care and medication when needed without fear of economic hardship or deportation. We have the right to party, to celebrate life through the night until the morning in 
both private and public spaces without being considered noise terrorists or suspicious neighbors. have their basic human dignity and rights protected by the law. Everyone has the right to disrupt business as usual without punishment to ensure the safety of our food, water, sanity, and air. Everyone has the right to call this place its indigenous Ohlone name, Yelamu, rejecting the colonial language while supporting our indigenous friends in their historical reclamation of land. Everyone has the right to deny the sovereignty, legitimacy, and authority of any institution or entity that does not abide by this declaration of human rights, even if only in the realm of the imaginary. You've been listening to The Plague Podcast. I'm your host, L.M. Bogad. And for more information on my books and performance work, you can go to lmbogad.com. Sound design and music by Jason Montero and my other friend named Jay. You're